Amen. So I think we've uh, hopefully dispelled some myths about the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we we've at some point you just have to get to a stopping point. There's no limit to, especially in a conversation about the Holy Spirit, there's no limit to the bizarre ways that um, people have twisted around the the purpose and ministry of the Holy Spirit and how mainline Christianity has just sort of adopted things without ever questioning or thinking or understanding what the Bible might say. Um, you know, as I think about uh, as I think about the Holy Spirit, I think about how oftentimes over the years I've heard people relate to the Holy Spirit as if the only thing he does is operate in spectacular moments in in big supernatural ways and uh, just completely discount the fact that it's the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer that gives us the words to say in everyday conversation, prompts us and by a still small voice to stop, have a conversation, or to call a person, or to all sorts of little, quiet, simple, continuous ways that the Holy Spirit uh, ministers. Um, I also think that there's a, an unspoken belief that the Holy Spirit, or at least being filled with the Holy Spirit, is an optional part of Christianity, which is absurd and ridiculous and completely unbiblical. Um, and then maybe just this idea that uh, he's not um, a permanent fixture in the believer's life. That when Jesus said in Matthew 28 uh, that he'll always be with us, how is it that he's always with us? It's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's always... Jesus is not always with us. The Spirit is always with us. So when God says... I'll be with you. That's what he's talking about. So as we jump in tonight, I'm going to try to uh, clean some things up, and then uh, you'll be able to see by the text that we'll take apart uh, where all this came from. So if you have your handouts, let's jump in. The clear teaching of the New Testament is centered on the profound truth of the indwelling Holy Spirit, not a hopeful potential arrival of a divine presence. It's not this idea that the Holy Spirit uh, is sometimes here and sometimes not here. And when, you're, when, you're, when you've been studying the Holy Spirit and talking about the Holy Spirit, you become, you have a heightened uh, sense of, you know, awareness of what's going on. And then you realize how many times I was at my, uh, one of my kids' Uh, sporting events this week and you know they go to a Christian school so before the game starts you know uh, we say a word of prayer and we were at a away game so we're at a visiting place and so when the guy prayed before the the game um, he asked that the Holy Spirit would be there with us and I'm like bro if I'm here, 
the Spirit's here. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I don't have to ask Him to be where I am. He's where I am. Whenever, where you go, He goes. That's how that works. But we just don't think. You know, we hear people say things, and then we just parrot what we hear. And, you know, what, but what we say has power because people listen to that. And we want to make sure that we're speaking the truth. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon various individuals to empower them for their God-assigned task. Now, I would say that probably most of the confusion about the Holy Spirit comes from people's uh, just memory or understanding of or having been taught as kids or whatever it is, Old Testament examples of the Holy Spirit because that seems to be the, you know, where most of this comes from. Um, When you get to the book of Judges, it's filled. The Judges were almost uh, every single time the Holy Spirit would come on them in order to function in their God-called process. Uh, In Exodus 31, the craftsmen are, are filled with the Spirit to accomplish their work in 1 Chronicles. Prophets the Holy Spirit comes upon them in order to do the things that they need to do, whether it be speak on behalf of God or have the courage to be able to do what God's called them to do. Leaders, you have Moses in Numbers 11, Joshua in Numbers 27, Saul in 1 Samuel 11, David in 1 Samuel 16. And then verses like 1 Samuel 16 where the Bible says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that be David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. But also, Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so we get this idea that the Spirit's, you know, coming on to somebody, but it's also leaving somebody. Um, You know, when you're reading the Old Testament, whenever you see especially a a prophet that God's using uh, to record scripture. You're going to see the Holy Spirit falling on them for that purpose, uh, continually empowering them through that time, but it's not always there, sometimes there. Um, But how does this somehow bleed over into the new covenant? That's where it, it gets a little confusing for me because it's so simple. There is, a, there is a line in the sand, if you will. There is a dividing line that separates what once was and what now is. And the two things are vastly, drastically different. And what is that line? Pentecost. Everything changed in Acts chapter 2. Everything. And all of the Old Testament references to the Holy Spirit are pointing to Acts chapter 2. No no New Testament believer should be surprised at what happened at Pentecost because we have eyes to see now. You go back and you look at all the Old Testament prophecies, and there's a lot of them, and they're all crystal clear pointing to what happened at Pentecost. Now, Let's answer the question is how does, how the Spirit works 
on non-Christians? Well, he works upon them before he works within them. So the Holy Spirit does work on non-believers, but he doesn't work the way he works in me and you. He's not working from the inside out. He's working from the outside in. So he works upon them to reveal himself to them, to, uh, you know, enlighten them to his presence, to it's all pointing to, as we've said over these last weeks, everything the Holy Spirit does points to Jesus. It never points to himself, ever. It only points to Jesus. So anytime someone's trying to draw attention to the Holy Spirit, that's a mistake because that will never work because the Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. Everything the Holy Spirit does is to illuminate and to lift up and to bring worship to Jesus. That is the function of the Holy Spirit. So he works upon them, not in them. And what does he do? How does he work upon them? Well, Jesus tells us that in John 16. To convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 16, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he goes on to give explanation about what that is. That's John 16, 8 through 11, I believe. So, think about this. The New Testament doesn't encourage us to think of a continual pouring out, but rather a personal living out of the indwelling Spirit of God residing in us through the work of Christ. So oftentimes what we think we want is a pouring out. But what does that mean? What is it? What are we asking for? And if we're asking for a, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, then the question you have to answer is, well, then what is it now? If, if a pouring out is what we want, then what is it without a pouring out? In other words, there must be less now and the opportunity for more if something happens. And let me just, while you're thinking now, let me get you to just keep thinking along these lines. So whenever we're talking about the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit was present somewhere where, or the Holy Spirit, whatever, you know, I, people say, you know, I was at this thing and the Holy Spirit was so thick or all sorts of ways we talk about this. Does the quantity of the Holy Spirit ever fluctuate? Ever. No. There are times that we experience more of him and times we experience less of him, but that's not because the quantity of him has changed. He's always fully 100% present. The difference between something being alive in the Holy Spirit and dead in the Holy Spirit that you were at or attended or experienced is 100% predicated on you and me and who was there, not the Holy Spirit. 
It wasn't the quantity that went up or down. That's not how that works. So it's a personal living out that that's what makes the difference. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find the teaching that we are to seek or pray for or sing about the need for the Holy Spirit to fall. That's not in the, that's not in the New Testament. That's not how that works. Once you, get, once you get to Acts and then you get through Acts, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, it's very clear and it's not complicated. It's very simple. But when you hear how we've learned to talk about the Holy Spirit, no wonder everybody's confused. Because it's, it's using all this terminology that's vague and seems to point to or lead to things that simply aren't true. That's not biblical. Of course, the Holy Spirit did fall on occasions in the book of Acts even. But think about what's happening right there. And go back, if you're confused, and listen to the series on Acts. Go back and listen to the, the, the chapters when I preach through the book of Acts and all through the Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5 and and. Remember that, yes, things are happening in the book of Acts. That those are descriptive moments in time. They're not prescriptive. People who are trying to relive something that happened at this fulcrum point where everything shifted, it, it, that's a one-time event. It's never going to happen again. But we have this idea where we just think, well, it happened once. It'll just happen that way again. No, it happened, and the Bible's very specific. It happened for a reason. We transitioned from one way of life to a whole new way of life. And so there was going to be some strange things that happened in the midst of the transition. But notice, once you get to the book of Romans, all the way to Revelation, crystal clear, no deviation, absolutely as obvious as you can be, and yet somehow we manage to just get this all tangled up. See, all of these ideas about, you know, the Spirit falling and, uh, you know, what people mean when they say, oh, you know, that this church is a spirit-filled church, or that thing is a... Oh, boy. What are we talking about? Are there saved people in the church? Then the church is spirit-filled. But that's not what they're talking about. But that's what the Bible teaches. Now, there may be... There's places where saved people are that are dead as a hammer. But the Spirit of God is there if their saved people are there. If there's one saved person, the Spirit of God is there. And I'm sure there's probably places where there's no saved people. I don't know. But the point is, we just need to realize that a lot of the goofy things that go on and the way things are spoken of... It's an old outside-in language. 
It's, all, it's an old covenant idea of the Holy Spirit. It's not the inside out new covenant teaching. Once you get to the New Testament, the Spirit of God works inside out. In the Old Covenant, when we go through the book of Judges, you're going to see over and over and over the Spirit of God show up in the Old Testament. Outside in. Outside in. But you do not see that in the New Testament. It's the opposite. It's brand new. Everything is different. The New Testament never commands a believer to be indwelt, gifted, baptized, sealed, or anointed by the Holy Spirit. Never. None of those things are biblical. Not one. But yet, we've all heard it said. We all probably know people who talk like this and believe these things. But it's not biblical. When it comes to a conversation about being indwelt, gifted, baptized, sealed, or anointed, let me clear it right up for you. Every one of those things is already a possession of a saved person. Saved people can't be indwelt. They can't be gifted. It's already happened. You wouldn't ask, can you imagine asking for the Holy Spirit to indwell me? What in the world is, I mean, the, the Bible teaches in 1 John that the defining mark of a Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is the defining mark. So how in the world would a saved person be asking to be indwelt or baptized or sealed, for goodness sake. What? That's called salvation. These are things for lost people. And lost people would never ask for it because they don't know what they're talking about. So when you hear these terms, I guarantee you they're church-going people using this language. So what does the Bible command us to do? Nothing? Well, something, sure. Absolutely. One thing. Be filled. That is the teaching of the new covenant. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I can... I can relate to the fact that I can see why the word filled can cause some, a little bit of confusion. But I think tonight I'm going to clear it up for you so you'll never have to deal with that again, I hope. You see in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Or 1 Corinthians 12 to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Do you need to ask for that? No. Now, you might be talking to God about being gifted in, a, in a additional areas, but a saved person to say, God, would you give me a gift? I mean, what? Look at what the Bible says. 
Each of you, every Christian, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For in one Spirit, we're all baptized into how many bodies? How many spirits are there? It's right there in the Scripture. Whether you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or old, in 1 John 2.20, if you've been anointed by the Holy One, you're saved. That's it. So this filling, Ephesians 5.8. So months ago, when I was... When I came to this passage of Scripture, because you remember this was way back, I started in Ephesians 5.18 when I started talking about marriage and family at the very beginning of the Ephesians series. And the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And right then I realized that we needed to have this, we needed to spend some time on Wednesday nights and dig into this because... I could see where some of this confusion was was leading people. Do not be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a double command. So Ephesians 5.18, the first thing I want you to understand, it's a double command. In one sentence, you have a double imperative. Imperative is just a fancy word for command. A double imperative, one thing you should never do, and another thing you should always do. There's a command to never do one thing and to always do another thing in one sentence, okay? Now, let's take it apart. Ephesians 5.18 in the Greek is in the imperative mood because in the Greek language you have different moods, so it's in the imperative, meaning that it's not optional. It is a command, 100% imperative, command, okay? Both sides, the negative and the positive. Not just one, the whole thing is in the imperative mood. Secondly, it's in the passive voice, which means that we do not make this happen to ourselves. In the passive voice means... I can't do it to me. It has to be done to me by someone outside of me. You got that? Which is very important to understand. It's also in the present tense, which is important because it means that it's continuous. It's not a one-time event. You don't get filled with the Spirit one time. Now, again, I know that we're, some of you are going, hold on a second. Now, you just said that we get all of the Spirit when we're saved that we can get or will ever have. That is right. I'm going to straighten you out in a second. That is correct. Being filled with the Spirit is, has nothing to do with quantity, which is the reason it messes us up. Because the only way we understand the English word filling is quantity. If you're filling something, it's, it's less than and becoming more than in quantity. But that is not what the Bible's talking about here. And one more thing, it's plural, which means this is a command for everyone. Every saved person is commanded in this negative and positive command. I mean, there is a lot going on in Ephesians 5.18. And the question you have to ask yourself, I mean, this, I remember 
when I first started diving into Ephesians, preparing for the, our time together on Sunday mornings, I remember when I got to the center section of chapter 5, and I was just working through all the words in chapter 5, I remember stopping and thinking to myself, why, why did Paul make this contrast here? Why did God make this contrast? You've got to ask yourself this question. Of all the things that God could have said to us about being filled with the Holy Spirit, does it not seem strange to you that, that God chose drunkenness to offset being filled with the Holy Spirit? He could have said anything. So I knew then there was definitely a very specific reason for this. And the first thing I thought about was, well, in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, when Peter got up to preach and thousands of people got saved, what did he say in the very beginning of the sermon? He said, contrary to what you believe, he said to the crowd, we're not all drunk because it's only the third hour. In other words, he said it's only 9 a.m., which, you know, to an alcoholic means nothing. But the point is, the first thing that he said was, we're not drunk. So clearly, what did the people who were watching what was going on at Pentecost think? That they were drunk. That was the first thing I thought about. But then I started thinking, well, now what I need to figure out is what does this word drunk even mean? I know what it means when I say it, and you know what it means when I say it, but that's not what I'm asking. What does the word that's translated drunk in the original language mean? And therein becomes the, the first breadcrumb in sorting this out. It means to be saturated, which is not exactly what we mean when we say drunk. See, we tend to think of drunk being quantity. Well, I try not to think about drunk, but you think of quantity, right? But that's not what the Bible's talking about. It has nothing to do with quantity. It has to do with saturation. So now let's just think about just practically for a minute. What do we know about drunkenness? Well, let's think about this. People get drunk for various reasons, primarily to numb themselves, to gain courage, and to forget. You see, the reason that we... we desire to be under the influence of something is because we want to escape something else, right? That's why people do that. They want to get away from something. And so when you get under the influence of something, it numbs that. It numbs whatever it is you're trying to get away from. And it also gives you great courage. Why does it give you great courage? Because it impairs your judgment. So what happens is when you drink alcohol, you get 
courageous because your judgment is impaired, and so you don't, you don't see consequences the way a sober brain sees consequences. So therefore, you have courage to do things you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So you could just be watching a movie or a TV show, and somebody would have some scary thing they have to do, and then they would take a shot of alcohol and then go do it. Just as if it's a foregone conclusion that we all understand that that's one of the purposes of alcohol. And then also to forget. Because when it, it dulls your senses, it, dulls your, it, it, it slows down, it depresses your thinking. Well, then you don't have to remember things that you're trying not to remember. Right? Well, compare that to when we're spirit-filled. We have the opposite effect, a dynamic inside-out heightened awareness, great confidence, and expectation. The exact opposite of what happens when you drink happens when you're filled with the Spirit. If you just read the New Testament verses that talk about the Holy Spirit, read all the things Jesus said that were going to happen when the Holy Spirit came, and consistently it's going to fall into one of three categories— Heightened awareness, you're going to see things, understand things, know things that you otherwise wouldn't know. So instead of reducing your awareness, it raises your awareness. Instead of giving you a false sense of courage, it gives you an actual sense of courage. Because why? When you understand that you were sealed in the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, well then what are you afraid of? Alcohol can't do that in a billion years. And when Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus, he, play, he prays that they would know the love of God through the Spirit of God, and what it would do is create this great expectation of the promises of God, of the rewards of following God, right? And so it's the exact opposite. And at the same time, when we have this heightened awareness, confidence, and expectation, then that releases us from the pursuit of a confusing old covenant idea of a presence that comes and goes mysteriously. See, here's the defeated, here's the defeated problem that comes as soon as you deviate from the Bible's teaching of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be defeated, and here's why. Because any, anyone that's talking about being filled uh, or, or a falling of the Spirit or any old covenant idea where the Spirit comes now but isn't uh, at another time or it's more here and less here or whatever the case may be, guess what? They have no control over that. It just happens randomly. And so think of how defeated that is for me, if that were the case for us. In other words, so we don't know when the Spirit's going to fall on us or not fall. We don't know if he, if he is, if He's not, when it will, when it won't, what, how. And so, in other words, it, it would almost be like an old covenant understanding of salvation. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter how great God had used you, you went to bed every night in the Old Testament unsure of whether you were going to go with God if you died or go somewhere else. How would you know? You couldn't know. There was no security. But God didn't just give us security and salvation through Jesus. He gave us security in the Holy Spirit through Jesus. 
So you don't have to worry about, about if he's there, if he's going to come, if he falls, if he doesn't, if I've been this, if I've been that. You don't have to worry about any of that. See, the Spirit, so look, here's, here's why Jesus is the only solution to everything, but in everything is also addiction since the Bible uses drunkenness. All, all addiction is tied to some form of escapism. I mean, we have some experts in the room, if you'd like to talk to them after the service, who can let you know. Now, there's a lot more experts in the room who just aren't as open about talking about it. But, I mean, let's face it, as a fellowship, we're filled with experts in this arena. And it's escapism. And so there's some, there's some monster that you're trying to get away from. There's some memory, there's some experience, there's some trauma, there's some this, there's some that. And it could, be the, it could be the monster of your reality in your current circumstances. It could be a monster that's haunting you from your past. It could be any array, but trust me, there, wherever there's addiction, whether it's food addiction, pornography addiction, or drug addiction, whatever it is, wherever there's addiction, there's a monster. And what happens when a person gets saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then begins to walk in the power of the Spirit? The Bible says you cannot, you cannot accomplish the deeds of the flesh. Now, why is that? Because the monster just got slayed. And how did the monster get slayed? Because whatever it was that we were afraid of, when we actually learn who the Holy Spirit is and how he operates in our life, we realize that that monster up against a good, sovereign God has zero chance and is no longer scary. You see, it's not that the monster's not real. It's not that that didn't happen. It's not that that wasn't bad. It's, not, it's just that something so much greater has entered the equation, it no longer has power. So can a, can a saved person be trapped in addiction? Absolutely. But can a saved person walking in the fullness of the Spirit be trapped in addiction? Not a chance. Zero chance. Just read the Bible. The power of sin has been broken at salvation. Does that mean we don't sin anymore? No, it doesn't. But you know what it means? We don't have to sin anymore. And there's a big difference. So what happens when someone moves from being sober to being drunk? They take steps. See, here's the thing about drunkenness. Drunkenness comes to an end.
even for the most devout alcoholics, at some point they sober up. It might only be for an hour. It might only be for 30 minutes. But at some point you sober up and then you go back in. And when you do, you, you follow the same steps that you followed to get there the first time. And so a person who's an alcoholic for a long period of time or a drug addict for a long period of time or a porn addict for a long period of time follows the same steps in every single time. And then they come out and they follow the same steps in. And they come out and they follow the same steps in. The steps never change. Never. It's always the same steps. Always. And what are those steps? Well, the first step is you make a choice. You make a choice. You know what's never happened in the history of the universe? In the history of the universe, no human being has ever become drunk that didn't choose to drink alcohol. That's not how it happened. You make a choice. Whatever the monster is that you're running from, with whatever the addiction is, you make a choice. The first step is always a choice. And the second step is always control. Always. Once you make a choice, you've now given control to whatever it is that now has you under its influence. This is just what the Bible teaches. It's not hard to figure out. And once... Once this gets control, what happens? Same thing. There's a change. You see, you can't be under the influence of something and not be changed by it. That's impossible. So you make a choice. You lose control. And then you change. And it's always, it's always those three things. So, with the Holy Spirit, you make a choice. A Christian makes a choice. Does God force you? No, He doesn't. Now you're starting to see why the Bible chose drunkenness to offset this illustration. Because you can see, they're exactly opposite in a bunch of ways, but they're also the same in some ways. You make a choice. You choose to obey the Spirit. You choose to follow the Spirit. You choose that. Then what happens? Once we make a choice, we submit control. Isn't that what happens? Well, yes. See, when you yield to the Holy Spirit, you're in yielding, you are handing off control, right? Yes. And as a result of that yielding, what happens? Your life has changed. See, there's no way to go around it. There's no possible scenario where the same three steps don't take place and the same outcome doesn't happen. Like there's no, no one in the history of the universe has ever yielded to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit not been in control. No one in the history of the universe has ever taken a step in the power of the Spirit and there's not been change. In other words, it's the same thing. But it's not at all the same. 
But you can see the wisdom of God in using this illustration for us. Now, what happens when we look at this passage in context? So verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. By the way, what is debauchery? What does that mean? What does that word mean? See, a lot of people think, well, that word just means immorality. Well, it does, but a lot of things mean immorality. I mean, what is it specifically does it mean? Debauchery is, is, is out of control in a totally wasteful way. In other words, when you're, when you're accomplishing nothing, that you're, you're expending energy and you're doing things, but nothing's getting accomplished which is exactly what happens when you're under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. Right? So, don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, watch what happens. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that's interesting. Now, remember, the context of Ephesians 5 is corporate gathering. And how do we know that? Well, first of all, guess what you cannot do alone? I mean, it's so obvious, but if you're by yourself in your house and no one else is there— and you're addressing other people in psalms and and hymns and spiritual songs, do not call me, call a professional (laughs) that has one of them funky jackets that the arms don't actually come out with your arms and it wraps around behind your back because that's the kind of help you need. So this isn't talking about me by myself. This is talking about us together. So what Paul does here is he describes being filled with the Spirit in terms of a lifestyle. You see that? Everything that he says, 19, 20, 21, this is a way of life that all Christians should be practicing from conversion. You're not working towards this. You're not achieving levels of the Holy Spirit. Anyone that tries to teach you that you get saved and then Later on, you, you get certain parts of the Holy Spirit to be able to do certain. That is a lie. That's not in the Bible. It's a lie. And it will always lead you to trouble. Always. Because it's not true. So it's going to disappoint. It can't be true. So it's a lifestyle. Look at, but let me just point out what's obvious. There's Christ-centered singing, verse 19. There's Christ-centered gratitude in verse 20. And there's Christ-centered submission. What I want you to understand here is that I want you to notice in verse 19, 20, and 21, the Bible specifically ties each thing directly to who? It's almost repetitive to the point it's hard to read. You're singing psalms and hymns. In Jesus. You're being grateful. In Jesus. Everything you're doing. In Jesus. What's it doing? 
Because what does the Holy Spirit do? Points to who? Always to Jesus. Always to Jesus. Never to himself. Always to Jesus. And every time, to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. Christ-centered, Christ-centered, Christ-centered. So a Spirit-filled life is not overly complicated or reserved for special Christians who have a secret knowledge of the Holy Spirit. No. Now, wouldn't the enemy love for you to believe that? That's exactly what he wants you to believe. Is that, oh, pitiful little you, you know, you're not mature enough. You haven't been saved long enough. You haven't studied long enough. You don't know enough, blah, blah, all this stuff. None of that is true. None of that is true. Rather, what the Bible teaches about being spirit-filled, it's a life yielded to the third person of the Trinity. So, if the word drunkenness means saturated, which it does, then every time you see the phrase or the term filled with the Spirit, say to yourself, saturated with the Spirit, just to help you understand what's going on. Because that's what it's saying. Saturated. That's what being filled is. It's saturated. But when you say saturated, it helps you not think in terms of quantity, which is going to get you all mixed up. Now, you know, what would be uh, equally helpful is you just said, well, filled with the Spirit is the same as yielded to the Spirit. It's yielded. That's what it is. Yielded to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, same thing. So the Holy Spirit's going to glorify Jesus in our lives. The more we yield to Him, the more He's going to glorify Jesus in our life. And that's going to produce the kind of fruit that glorifies Jesus. That's what's going to happen. So as you and me yield to the Holy Spirit, it's going to manifest Jesus in our life. We're going to produce the fruit that Jesus would be glorified through because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Think about this. If, think about how bizarre it is that I could, I could at any time stand up here at this platform and I could start preaching a message about the fruit of the Spirit and just wipe the room out with condemnation. I mean, it's, and just start nailing you about all the ways. In other words, and just go, go, go. So everybody knows that in some way you're failing to produce fruit. Because guess what? None of us is, is perfect at it, are we? So we could just go on long enough to where everybody just feels pathetic. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself this question? Whose job is it to produce fruit? Or maybe it's easier understood this way. Who's the only person in the universe that can produce spiritual fruit? Is it you? It is not you. It's the Holy Spirit. His job is to produce fruit. So if you are not as fruitful 
as you could be or you should be, then you clearly don't have an effort problem, do you? Can you imagine a tree in your yard all clenched up, trying to pop out an orange? Huh? You can't produce fruit. The Holy Spirit produces fruit. So if you have a fruit problem, then just focus on the Holy Spirit. The solution is not you, 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 you. The solution is him, 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 him. That's where fruit comes from. That's why some people seem marvelously fruitful in their walk with God and other people don't. And both people are saved and both people possess the same quantity of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? One person understands that if you want to be fruitful in the kingdom of God, you focus on the Holy Spirit. Fruit is produced as we yield to the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way. So somebody who's super fruitful is not because they have a lot of the Holy Spirit. You have the same. All right, the Holy Spirit motivates our behavior. But please understand, our behavior does not manufacture the Holy Spirit. You should put an asterisk next to that statement. You can't, you can't do something to manufacture the Holy Spirit. You, you listen... You didn't behave your way into being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So you can't behave your way in and out and around it. It was never, but it was, you weren't saved because of behavior. So that means you didn't receive the Holy Spirit because of behavior. So you're not going to manipulate him based on behavior. That's not how it works. That's the way we think it works because that's how we work. But that's not how God works. That's not how he works. It's not this idea that we can... Instead of anticipating what the Spirit might do to us, we should focus on what the Spirit is wanting to do in us. The question is always, what is the Spirit wanting to do in me? Which, I mean, the question that I ask over and over and over in my life is, Well, what's the Holy Spirit saying? Is this, I want to hear, I want to hear more. I want to hear, I want to hear, I want to hear. I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. Because the more I hear and the more I know, the more I can yield and the more fruit he produces. That's how it works. And guess what? Hearing God is not me working really hard to hear God. It's just listening. And I'm going to get to that in a second. So let's, let's make sure. All right. So when we're arriving, if this, is, if this is talking about corporately, if we're arriving to our gathering, so if we're coming to church with a focused desire for the Spirit to fill, 
It's going to transform our lives from the inside out, which God desires to be our normal Christian experience. That's what ought to be normal every time we're together. Every time. That's what should happen every time. And shame on us if it's not. We should come together with this desire for God to fill us or saturate us. For us to see, because what we do corporately is we have an opportunity to corporately do what? Yield to the Spirit of God. All right, so some keys to understanding. First of all, all saved people possess the Holy Spirit equally, true or false. If you got it wrong, I was quitting right on the spot. Like, that's it, I give up. It's hopeless cause, there's no point. Goodness. All saved people live Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll give you grace on this one because I might be trying to snag you up a little bit. Now, all saved people live saturated with the Holy Spirit. See? Now, you don't live saturated with the Holy Spirit all the time. Remember? Saturated, yielded, negative. Because if you're saturated with the Holy Spirit, you can't accomplish the works of the flesh. And there's not a person in here today that didn't accomplish at least some of the works of the flesh. So that means you didn't live filled with the Holy Spirit all day. You were filled in quantity, but you weren't saturated. You weren't yielded. And neither was I. See, filling is yieldedness, right? So... So let, let, me, let, me, let me just help you understand for a second. This is why if people say things like, well, if you said, well, Pastor Tony, we, we got to hurry, I know. If, if, you, if you said, Pastor Tony, uh, when would be the most productive time for me to read my Bible every day? I wouldn't say to you, it doesn't matter, just read it every day. I would say, if... If the choice is read it or not read it, then it doesn't matter, just read it. But if you have options and you're going to read it, then I'm going to strongly recommend that you read it first thing in the morning so that it starts your day on a trajectory of being filled with the Spirit, yielded by the Spirit. So in other words, I started thinking about how I am more filled, I am more saturated, I'm more yielded to the Spirit at different times of the day than at other times. Just like you are. Depending on my day. So when I've been spending a lot of time in the Word of God, I'm way more yielded. Because how does God speak to me? Same way He speaks to you. How? Number one, far and away, 10 times more than any other way, through the Word of God. And so a person who doesn't read their Bible, forget it. It ain't happening. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not, if you're not hearing sermons, sitting under the teaching of God's Word, in other words, these are things that create saturation. 
That's how that works. So here's the only, all right, we got to go quick. But this is how you can understand this, okay? So you stop thinking about more here, less here. You ever had this experience where you, you get a new car? Well, I mean, you get a different, I don't buy new cars, but you get a different car. So you get a different car than the car you had. Well, I don't even drive a car. I get a different truck than the truck I had. So you've, you've had that experience before. And what happens as soon as you get a different car? Suddenly you notice there's 10 million of the same cars everywhere you look. Now, did miraculously the same day you bought that truck or that car, everyone else went and bought the same car with the same color? No. What happened was nothing changed except for you became more aware of that car in that color. You got that? Guess what? You didn't get more spirit in you when you're walking in the spirit. You just became more aware of the spirit that's in you. That's how that works. So how does the spirit work? Well, first of all, he works through truth. A hundred percent. What did Jesus say? It's better that I go away than the Spirit come. Why? Because what is He going to do? Why is it better? He's going to guide you into all truth. Truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if you look at Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, and then you read Colossians 3, 16, 17, it's the same exact thing. The same three things, the same Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered gratitude, Christ-centered submission, except for the very first part is different. I talked about it in week one. In Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, meaning be filled with the word. It's the same thing, the same thing. So to be saturated by the truth and saturated by the spirit are the same thing. When you're saturated by the truth, you're automatically saturated by the Spirit. When you're yielded to the truth, you're yielded to the Spirit because He is the Spirit. The Spirit is truth. Truth is the Spirit. You got that? Okay. The next thing you have to understand about how He works is you don't want to quench the Spirit. And quenching the Spirit is hearing Him speak and refusing to listen. The most common way that you quench the Spirit is you hear or read, sense the Spirit's conviction, and then put Him off. The minute you say, I'll deal with that later, I'll do that later, I'll think about that, I'll pray about that, I'll, whatever your excuse is, whoop, you, you quench Him. Now, does that mean He just left the building? No, dummy. You just, you just aren't aware of that new car anymore. See, it's still there the same way. But you quench him. So it's my favorite analogy is, is what I always say. I always say, clean your room. Because if I tell my kids, clean their room, and they don't clean their room, whatever else they say to me, Dad, can I? Shut up. Is your room clean? No. Well, then don't speak. Until you do what I first told you to do, there's not going to be any other things. Now, once you do what I told you to do, then we can talk about new things. 
But I'm not going to, you, you, you can't just say, well, I don't want to clean my room. Let's make a deal on something else. That's not how dad works. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. So when he speaks and you hear but don't listen, you quench him. Or you grieve him. You make him sad. You hurt his feelings. Living in a way that displeases him. Sin grieves the Spirit of God. Grieves him. Now here's a great test for you. Because I think the simplest way for you to understand the Spirit's activity in your life in our culture revolves around this issue right here. How do you know if your focus, if your the focus of your joy is on the giver or the gifts? Because what what is the what is the universal most obvious first indicator in our lives that we're saturated with the Spirit? Joy. Always. But how do you know if it's real joy or false joy? Because we live in Disneyland. And our lives are filled with false joy. And so a lot of us can't tell the difference between real joy and false joy. And there's a very simple test that will always shine a light on your joy and tell you what kind of joy you have. Very simple. How do you deal with unanswered prayer? Simple. When God doesn't do what you want Him to do, what do you do? You get mad about that? You pout? You have a pity party? You start telling God why about how He owes you this and owes you that, and you man, 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 man. You know what? Because all you're wanting is the gifts. You don't care nothing about the giver. Has the giver of the gifts? If, if God never answered another prayer in my life for the rest of my breathing days, not one thing about God would change. Not one thing. I don't deserve anything. The last thing I'm going to do is start mully grubbing around because God didn't do what I want to do when the whole point of needing a Savior in the first place is that God would save me from what I do. But I'm telling you right now, we live in a culture that is a sea of false joy. And as soon as things don't go the way you think they ought to go, See, Holy Spirit joy. And, and you ask yourself, what are you talking about, Pastor Tony? I'm talking about why do you, how come when you're reading the Bible and the disciples or the apostles are singing hymns and having a party while they're in jail facing uh, imminent death and you're looking at it like a cow at a new gate and can't figure it out? What's shocking about that? That's Holy Spirit joy. That's what that is. That's what that is. That means that, you know what? I'm not happy if, if I lose my job or if the economy tanks and my 401k goes away or if somebody I love dies or if somebody gets cancer. None of those things make me happy. But let me tell you something. None of those things are going to steal my joy either. They're not going to steal my joy. 
At the end of the day, there's a sovereign God who's good, and I'm going to be with him in heaven because I'm sealed in the Holy Spirit, and that ain't never going to change. See, but when you live a life that's way up one day and way down another day, something ain't right. It's not right. That doesn't mean, listen, it's not up all the time. That's false joy too. But it's not way up here and way down here and way up here and way down here. It's, there's got to be something consistent. Bad days are bad and good days are good, but God's always there and he's always good in the midst of whatever it is. Right? Yeah. The way to tell if your joy is spiritual joy is simple. It lasts. Spiritual joy lasts. It's not circumstantial. Jesus said in John 16, 22, So shall you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. He's talking about after the resurrection. And he said, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Do you know what Jesus is talking about? Pentecost. He's going to the cross and he's saying, I know you're sad today, but let me tell you something. I'm going to send a joy that man can't take from you. So now, is man stealing your joy? Why? Why? And the last thing I want you to hear before you leave tonight. Being spirit-filled is yielded to the spirit. That's all it is. Listening, hearing, obeying, reading, obeying, hearing, yielding. That's what filled with the spirit is. That's all it is. Saturated. When the spirit's telling you to do things, you do it. Yeah, the more you obey, the more you hear. That's how it works. And if that's the case then if you're bored, you're not filled with the Spirit. I don't mean you don't have the Spirit in you. I mean you're not saturated. You're not yielded. Because if I'm obeying what the Spirit's saying, if I'm yielding to the Spirit, then, then He's guiding me into all truth. I'm seeing things I never saw before. I'm experiencing things. In other words, what I have a certainty... I'm I'm operating in the certainty of the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, which means fear is banished from my life. Think about all the things that are happening. I have power in my life that I couldn't have imagined. And primarily this, when you walk yielded to the Holy Spirit, God uses you for the very purpose for which you were created. And there's nothing better than that in the entire universe.